been to add value, to give you a perspective that you may not be receiving from other sources, including those up and down the timeline on this very air. And uh, in order to try to achieve that in the context of this Brett Kavanaugh situation, the the angle that I want to try to get to tonight is exploring the long-term institutional consequences to the tact that the Democrats have chosen to engage in here with Brett Kavanaugh, because what they're doing is that it's far more than just the immediate political goal of derailing this particular confirmation and the, the broader midterm goal of trying to disrupt the Trump administration. What they're doing, the effect, whether they're aware of it or not, and I think some of them are, I think most of them aren't, is they're undermining our institutions and they're undermining their own institutions, the the things that they rely upon and the, the integrity of our political discourse, our capacity to engage in rational, good faith dialogue and to to try to compete with one another politically in order to achieve the end of good public policy that actually serves the American people. All of that is being undermined at this point. They're creating a situation whereby partisanship is required. And I'm going to make that argument tonight. Partisanship is actually required in this current moment. It's justifiable. It's defensible. We're going to get to that tonight. However, that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. When you live in a society, when you live in a political moment whereby you cannot engage in good faith with your political opposition, then you've created a monopoly. You've created a monopoly whereby there is only one option that you can pursue. There is only one option that you can have allegiance to in order to pursue decency and rationality and goodness in public policy. And that creates, just like any monopoly that were to manifest, it creates a scenario where you're not actually going to be able to get after the things that you're trying to get after. It creates opportunities for people to take advantage and it removes opportunities for us to actually move in the direction that we're supposed to move into. We're going to get into all that tonight in regards to Brett Kavanaugh on closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brett Omland taking those calls and producing this show. Before we get into Kavanaugh and the myriad of new developments from the last time we were live on the air, let's go over to Keith Ellison. And this is related, the Keith Ellison story, because obviously Representative Keith, you know, since the time that these allegations, the first allegation by Christine Ford was raised against Brett Kavanaugh, those of us here in Minnesota approach it from a unique perspective because we more than any other folks in the nation are closest to the story of Keith Ellison 
and the accusations that have been made against him by his former girlfriend, Karen Monahan. And the Minnesota Democrats, the DFL, are in a particularly hypocritical position to be supportive of and harping on Brett Kavanaugh and lending credence to the accusations that have been leveled against him, while at the same time either completely ignoring or purposely, willfully dismissing the allegations brought against Keith Ellison. And, of course, you know that's something that we've talked about at length and we'll continue to talk about tonight. In an organization in this state that is attempting to provide balance, ideological balance, to the journalism equation here called Alpha News, we talked about a story a week or so ago whereby they are suing to try to unseal the divorce records of Keith Ellison in order to further investigate these allegations that have been brought against him. Well, a new player has entered that battle, and it's an unexpected one. The Star Tribune has joined the legal effort to unseal the divorce records of U.S. Representative Keith Ellison, the Democratic candidate for attorney general, this from the very Star Tribune. Ellison and his ex-wife, Kim Ellison, divorced in 2012. The related records have been sealed so the public cannot access the information. The Star Tribune's motion to intervene and unseal the records follows a similar action by Alpha News, a right-leaning online news and opinion site. We have the editor-in-chief of Alpha News, Christine Bauman, on the line with us tonight. Christine, appreciate you joining us on the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Walter. Glad to do so. I wanted to get your reaction to, because you know this struck me as unexpected and, of course, welcome, the news that the Star Tribune is joining you in this effort. Now, you know, we use the, the phrase joining you. It's not as though they called you up and said, hey, let's do this together. Right. But they are pursuing the same end. What's right. your immediate response to the Star Tribune getting involved in this, and what's it been like since this news broke? Yeah, it's, it was very surprising. Initially, when we broke this last week that we were going to file this lawsuit, there was crickets from the local media. So it seemed to be that nobody was going to be interested in joining us in this pursuit to reveal the truth, bring truth to this. And hopefully, like you opened up your show with, you know, this does ruin our political discourse as we go down this path of um, believing. And and in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, we're believing the accusers. In the case of Keith Ellison, we're believing the accused. And we don't have a standard. Right. And so we really thought this was necessary to pursue truth in this. And it seemed like we weren't going to get any support in that. But then yesterday when it broke that the Star Tribune joined us, it was it was amazing. I mean, it really proved that this isn't just a partisan request mm. because, I mean, if it can be said that we lean right, the Star Tribune can be said that they lean left. And so now there's a wider group of people who are interested in transparency in this subject. And that's really heartening. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, nobody's gonna nobody in the mainstream media is going to go out of their way to try to give you guys credit for leading the way on this. But it was nice to see that you were at least mentioned in the third paragraph here at the Star Tribune as uh, the organization mm -hmm. that led the way. Uh, have Have you noticed since because Alpha News has been around for a while now mm -hmm. in the the course of your uh, lifetime as an organization, mm -hmm. have you noticed a a momentum or a trend? in the direction of, of being more influential in this regard in terms of being able to to shine light in corners that other organizations are not willing to tread? 
Absolutely. Actually, really, I feel like we've, in the last year or so, have just picked up steam, and we have so many readers that are so hungry for what we provide, especially when it comes to people like Keith Ellison and now this whole controversy surrounding this, that really up until this week now, we've been the only news outlet that's been covering it consistently and keeping on top of it. So many people have been willing to overlook the things that Karen Monahan is sharing on her Twitter. I mean, it's right there, easy picking. It's not hard to find. They don't have to dig out these stories, but they're willing to not pay attention to it. And our readers have just been hungry for this. And so as we continue to have these cases where we can help shine a light in areas that the mainstream media in Minnesota are just overlooking, I think it's just we continue to gain steam and have a growing level of influence among Minnesotans that are wanting this kind of reporting. Now, not to get ahead of anything that you have uh, lined up to to break in the near future, but are there any developments that folks could look forward to reading about shortly at uh, alphanewsmn.com? Well, with the Keith Ellison lawsuit here, we have a court hearing coming up on the 9th. So that's kind of what we're looking forward to with this. And really, we have no idea if our request will be granted to unseal the documents. We feel confident, but... We, we can't say for sure, obviously. Mm-hmm. And if they should be released, we don't know if they're going to have any bearing on the abuse allegations right. or any relevance to the race in general as Ellison goes forward with trying to become the top law enforcement officer in the state. So it'll be interesting to see, as it gets closer and nice, how we feel about that and what comes of this. Uh, we do know that the uh, Ellison camp is not happy about this lawsuit and in the Star Tribune article they have a comment from both Ellison and his ex-wife that uh, their statement was our divorce simply isn't the public's business and therefore when we separated we jointly asked the court to seal the file. Mm -hmm. Now one month before closely contested election for Minnesota Attorney General a conservative group wants to probe our divorce file in search of something to use against Keith in this race. I'm disappointed the Star Tribune would choose to file this motion. So it's interesting that they're coming out against it. I mean, we expected that, but right. uh, well, it's kind of see if there's anything there. It seems it seems difficult to maintain the conservative group as attacking us argument when it's the Star Tribune that's joining exactly. the case at this point. So exactly, it it shows that it's not a partisan issue, and we're not just trying to find dirt on Keith Ellison. That's not our goal here. Our goal is to shed some light on this before Minnesota voters have to go make a really important decision in November. Appreciate you joining us this evening, Christine Bauman, with uh, Alpha News. Again, alphanewsmn.com is where you can learn more. And uh, best of luck to you guys, and we'll we'll uh, continue to follow what you're developing. Thanks for having me on, Walter. Anytime. Also, regarding the Ellison abuse allegations from the Daily Caller, Karen Monahan, the former girlfriend of Democratic Representative Keith Ellison, who has accused him of domestic abuse, on Saturday posted Facebook or on Facebook, several screenshots of messages she allegedly received from the congressman in 2017. Monahan wrote via Facebook, After I realized this situation was narcissist abuse, I told him I now understand the dynamics of the relationship and the various forms of abuse. He would call that bickering when he was called out, but he still left messages like this throughout the whole year of 2017. And then she shares the content of the message and... Honestly, I read over it once, and I, I'm not following the the damning content here in these particular messages. But it is interesting, nonetheless, that as far as Karen Monahan is concerned, 
this ain't over and she ain't stopping and she ain't backing down and she's continuing to press forward with the the demand on the public's uh, attention to pay attention to her and to take her allegation seriously and you know the the one thing that it does demonstrate uh, amongst all of the other pieces that have dropped from Kieran Monahan in recent days and weeks is that unlike the accusers that have surfaced to direct their accusations at Brett Kavanaugh, Karen has evidence. She has tangible things that she can produce that are actually directly related to the person who she is alleging did bad things. And she has a, a, a documented narrative that's been documented for some time. It's not something that she came up with a few days ago. It's not something that she conjured from assessed memories. We'll get into that here shortly. One of the, this, this latest accusation against Kavanaugh, there's two of them that appeared over the weekend. And they're both so extraordinarily thin and vacuous and, and laughable that it really does. To take them seriously at all demeans everyone. And, and it's, and it's, that's what, this is what I talk about. When I, when I say we're destroying our institutions to the extent that we are, it's like the boy who cried wolf to the extent that we are treating these accusations as if they are substantive at all and deserving of attention and worth halting a judicial process over. We are ruining the capacity of, of the Senate as an institution to confirm Supreme Court justices, or anyone for that matter, going forward. That's kind of a problem. And it's and it's bipartisan in its consequence. Democrats are not asking themselves the question of what's going to happen when this new way of doing things is turned around on us. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Ted in Minneapolis is on the line. Thanks for calling us. Hi, Walter. Hi. Yeah, it's interesting to start to use, uh, like, join this lawsuit because uh, there was some breaking news last Wednesday. And on Thursday's paper, they buried the story just to the right of the obituaries, which is probably the least visible place in the whole paper. Mm-hmm. And also, I want to talk about this lady who's running the 5th District Congress. Uh, her name Omar. Her last name is Omar. She's yeah. Italian. Right. Uh, there was an article in the City Journal about her talking about how she married a guy who could technically be her brother. Uh, she wants to erase all student debt. Uh, she's been uh, accused of campaign violence uh, violations. Uh she, when she stops smiling and starts talking, uh, she port instead of being grateful you know, to be an immigrant in this country, she is portraying herself as a victim. Mm-hmm. And they say in this district that she's in, which is my district, Minneapolis, uh, she's guaranteed to win. Yeah, nobody even right. knows her opponent's which, name. Which is such a testament to how oppressive and victimizing the American culture is, right? I mean, she's she's guaranteed virtually to be the next congresswoman from your district. And that's just prima facie evidence of the patriarchy and you know racism and a million other isms that we're guilty of as a nation. Yeah, it's not fair. <laughs> I appreciate you called that. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. Uh, I had a, a thought here. I listened to your intro, and I think this may very well be Kavanaugh and Ellison situation may really backfire and ultimately end up really hurting the Democrats because I can see a very savvy PR person Mm -hmm. take all of this Ellison information, Mm -hmm. and I believe the woman you mentioned, I mean, there's actual evidence. Right. And I don't think Blassie Ford, if if I was a betting man, she's not going to show. I think this is all a, a... a charade that's going on. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what's doing. And then to, to interject this as well, I think Feinstein should be under censure proceedings because why would, if this was serious, why wasn't this brought? Something is, in my view, had been violated with the process, why this wasn't brought forward earlier. But I think this goes to people will see this and they'll, the question will be, well, why in this case? Are the rules different? What about this Ellison character? Now, if you run that nationwide, that's not going to look good for Democrats. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate your thoughts, for, uh, Mike. I I don't disagree with you. I to me, I think the I think the damage here, the damage here is much deeper and much broader and much longer lasting than what we're currently even thinking about or perceiving. And that is, you know, we're, we're at a point, and, and I want to explore this throughout the rest of the hour. We're at a point where the, in attacking Brett Kavanaugh, the Democrats are managing to do what no Republican, including Donald Trump himself, has been capable of over the last two years. And that is to bind together, to re-solidify, to recalcify the Republican coalition. Like I find myself in in a kind of fraternal bond with folks who I've had tension with and been on the outs with for the past couple of years over our differences over Donald Trump. And we're suddenly a big happy family again because the way they're treating Brett Kavanaugh presents such a threat to everything we hold dear that. It becomes an us versus them scenario. In other words, another way to put that is partisanship has become justified. Partisanship has become not only defensible, but the only rational course of action. We must take, we must close ranks, we must circle our wagons, and we must defeat our opposition because there's more than just an election at stake. The integrity of our institutions and the integrity of our political discourse itself is at stake. Now, that's not a good thing. To be, to be in that situation whereby it's us versus them and we have to destroy them politically, we have to annihilate them politically, they cannot be allowed to have any power, the Democrats. To be in that scenario is to, is to advocate for and pursue a political monopoly. The monopoly of one party without competition that completely shuts the other one out. Now, that might sound good to you if you live in this in a partisan bubble and long for nothing more than to see Republicans control everything forever. But it's not actually good for the country. And this is where, you know, because I know we have some lefties who listen. This is the appeal I would make to you. This is why you need to oppose what's going on right now with Brett Kavanaugh. The consequence 
of pushing people like myself, who you know to be critical of my own side, to push us into a position where we have to be extremely partisan in order to defend basic decency and truth and goodness and humanity because you're throwing everything out the window. You're throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, at your effort to derail this guy. By doing that, you are creating a space for political monopoly. You are eliminating the competition that ought to exist between at least two parties towards the end of affecting good public policy that actually affirms life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And nobody wins in that scenario. That's not good for anyone. The, the idea, you know, you're, you're, you're creating a disgust for the process and a disgust for you and your party that is going to be insurmountable, that you are not going to be able to overcome, and that is going to prevent bipartisanship of any kind in scenarios where it is required. That's the thing. We have a, our entire political system, you know, like it or, for better or worse, whether you like it or not, our entire political system is designed to drive us toward compromise. It's designed to drive us toward moderation, for better or worse, whether you like that or not. That, that's how it's designed to function. And when you can't get there, when you, when you make it impossible to do that, you create dysfunction. And that's what this is doing. This, this is a war against functional government. And, the, the, and, and thus, advocacy for chaos, advocacy for anarchy. And that's going to be the effect going forward. That's, those are the stakes. And I don't see how anybody wins with that unless, unless that's your intention. Unless you don't actually want the government to function. And, you know, and, and your real goal is not just political victory in the short term, winning an election, derailing a nominee for the Supreme Court, but your real goal is subverting the entire American process and everything that it stands for. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I want to get to your calls on the Kavanaugh situation at 651-989-5855. But before we do, I want to get into these accusations that were leveled against him over the weekend, the second and third accusations, if you can even, if they even merit being called such. I mean, this is the flimsiest stuff imaginable. It's laughable that anyone is taking it seriously and yet, here we are. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Brad Omlin taking your calls and producing the show. From the Daily Wire, the New Yorker published new accusations on Sunday from a second woman who alleges that Judge Brett Kavanaugh acted sexually inappropriate towards her at a party during their college years. Deborah Ramirez, 53, alleges that while she was at a Yale party, intoxicated to the point that she was on the ground in a foggy state slurring her words, Kavanaugh pulled his pants down and exposed himself to her. The New Yorker report and a subsequent report from the New York Times both raised multiple red flags about the credibility of the allegations. 
Here are 10 key points compiled from both reports that raise serious questions about the claims. Number one, the New Yorker could not find a single witness who could put Kavanaugh at the alleged party. Buried more than a thousand words into the report, Ronan Farrow and Jane Meyer wrote, the New Yorker has not confirmed with other eyewitnesses that Kavanaugh was present at the party. The magazine contacted several dozen classmates of Ramirez and Kavanaugh regarding the incident. Many did not respond to interview requests. Others declined to comment or said they did not attend or remember the party. So in other words, there was no substantiation to this report whatsoever, yet they ran with it. Number two, the New York Times could not find a single person who could corroborate Ramirez's claims. The New York Times likewise could not find a single witness to back up Ramirez's allegations. The Times had interviewed several people, dozen people over the weekend, several dozen people over the weekend, in an attempt to corroborate her story and could find no one with firsthand knowledge. Number three, the man accused of egging on Kavanaugh denied Ramirez's allegations and vouched for Kavanaugh's character. Again, buried more than 1,400 words in the New Yorker story. Faro and Mayer provided a quote from one of the men named by Ramirez. One of the male classmates of Ramirez said egged on Kavanaugh denied any memory of the party. I don't think Brett would flash himself to Debbie or anyone for that matter, he said. Asked why he thought Ramirez was making the allegation, he responded, I have no idea. The other male classmate who Ramirez said was involved in the incident commented, I have zero recollection. <laughs> and that's three out of ten. Three out of ten. And it doesn't get any better from there in terms of the problems with these accounts. Absolutely flimsy, completely meritless, and yet published as if news by the New Yorker and by the New York Times. And and being taken seriously by Democrats in the Senate and alleged, you know, I, one lefty friend of mine on social media t today actually used the phrase, and I believe that they sincerely mean this, actually used the phrase that Kavanaugh is guilty AF, and you know what AF stands for, that he, based upon their assessment of these allegations. Now, I don't know in what world you're, you're examining the evidence, quote-unquote, that's been presented and come into the conclusion that Kavanaugh is guilty AF, but there it is. Apparently, if you're on the left, you have some sort of superhuman deductive ability in order to come to that conclusion. And, of course, there's been a third accusation leveled by the lawyer of Stormy Daniels. We're now taking as gospel, we're now sourcing as legitimate Senate judicial confirmation testimony the statements from the lawyer of a porn star. That's now the source we're going to in order to obtain our credible information regarding the merits of a guy like Brett Kavanaugh. And the accusation is that Kavanaugh and his buddies in college ran a, are you ready for it? A gang rape operation. Those were already proven to be false. It was a uh, 4chan. Somebody on 4chan trolled Michael Avenatti. Oh, okay. So that's already been okay. Yeah, gotcha. Michael Avenatti like shut down his social media accounts and has already withdrew the proceedings. All right, I must have missed that. Well, it's it's. I'm surprised that he's backed off because we've we've already established that nothing needs to have be. Have you ever credible. been on 4chan? No, I, I take it I have no real. I'm not missing anything by not being on 4chan. All right, let's get to your calls. Let's talk to Mike in St. Paul. Thanks for holding. Hi, Walter. Hi. Say, um, you remember, of course, when Joe Biden was in the Senate and yeah. he said that the sitting president didn't have the right to nominate a, a Supreme Court justice in their last year in office. When who said this? Uh, Joe Biden, when he was a senator. And I then, don't recall that, but okay. 
Okay, well then, of course, you remember when Harry Reid decided to change the rules in the Senate as far as the filibuster. Yeah, right. And so here we are, and I wonder to myself then, where, where are the smart people in that party that they realize that they don't realize that at some point, guys, things move in cycles and they right. turn, right. and it's going to come back. Yeah. And, and what is happening right now is so heinous, it's so despicable, you know, to any sense of decency whatsoever. That, for instance, the people that I talk to associate on a daily basis, the term is gloves are off. Oh, yeah. They are hardening. I mean, and I'm not, I'm, I won't say that I'm anti-abortion. I'm, I'm, I'm not pro-abortion. I, I believe that's a very personal decision. But we know that this is what this is about. And if you are willing to destroy somebody, that, it, it just, it's to the point now where, like you said, we have to galvanize to that's where, right. I mean, how does somebody say you're guilty AF, you're guilty, how, how can you be so intellectually dishonest that we can't take you seriously? I, I appreciate the call on the thoughts, Mike. And it's the answer is for the political utility, of course. That's That's it. And and short term, short sighted as it may be, that nonetheless is the rationale, and the consequences are going to be catastrophic in the long term. You know, because again, partisanship is not only justified; it's necessary in this moment. Like this, they cannot be allowed to succeed. They can't be allowed to succeed. They cannot be allowed to derail. Now, listen, if Brett Kavanaugh actually did some of this stuff and were presented with evidence that indicates that he actually did some of this stuff that changes the whole calculation. Then I'll be singing a different tune, but to date based upon what has been presented this far, the idea that what's been presented to date is enough to derail the confirmation of a guy with Brett Kavanaugh's reputation and accomplishment it, and to destroy him personally and politically and in terms of his career going forward to absolutely destroy this man if this is all it takes the the consequences to due process and to our institutions moving forward it's irreparable at the very least it's going to take a long time to get our to work our way back from the damage that that will do and so they cannot be allowed to succeed which means which puts us in a position of having to make compromises that we otherwise would not want to make in terms of setting aside you know one of the things a lot of my libertarian friends complain about brett kavanaugh on the fourth amendment and how bad he is on the fourth amendment now i'm not about to dispute i'm not i'm not interested in arguing that point but what i am going to suggest to you is that however bad kavanaugh is on the fourth amendment at this point it doesn't matter because having brett kavanaugh as bad as he may or may not be on the fourth amendment on the Supreme Court is a much lower price to pay, an infinitely lower price to pay than allowing the Democrats to get away with what they are trying to accomplish here. Therefore, the necessity is to galvanize. The necessity is to circle the wagons. Let's talk to Josh in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, hey how's it going? Good. Yeah, I was just going to say, I. Um, you know, I really felt that Merrick Garland probably had better credentials than Kavanaugh. And you guys and Republicans wouldn't even give him a vote and then left uh, the Supreme Court underhanded for like almost a complete year. So to just wait a couple days, you know, you're just trying to 
penny penny the sky is falling that that you're holding up the process by a couple days like i think you guys should relax a little bit so my response to that and it's difficult to conjure one because there's there's not much to grasp onto there but my my only response to that would be you're comparing apples to apples i mean these two situations have proceeded exactly the way they're supposed to under the Constitution and under the law. In both cases, you had duly elected presidents, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, respectively, each of whom made their nominations to the Supreme Court. And then the also duly elected Senate majority, which in both cases happened to be Republican-controlled, decided how to pursue advice and consent. In the case of Merrick Garland, they decided not to pursue it, as is their right, as elected members of the Senate. And in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, they've chosen to pursue it, and they continue to hold the majority. So in both cases, the Senate, which was elected, just like each president, acted according to their constitutional authority. So I don't see your complaint. But also, you know, Kavanaugh hasn't released. There's thousands of pages of information when he has been a political operative working for Bush, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, he wasn't just a judge's whole life. He's held a lot of different positions. Uh, working as a political operative, some in sort of obviously secretively if he, he doesn't want to release that information. And uh, he's had a lot of bad decisions that he really, he just kind of basically favors really wealthy people. You know who you like need to convince, Josh? To. You know who you need to convince? You need to convince the Senate majority. So well, good luck with like, that. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So I knew we were going to have trouble getting through all the material that uh, I've called together, Brad and I have called together for the show this evening, particularly on the topic of Brett Kavanaugh and the hearings and the accusations and what have you. There's just too much of it. But just to give you a flavor of some of the stuff that I had in stack here, there was a piece over at Politico that was uh, written by a John Harris. The headline was, Why God is Laughing at Brett Kavanaugh. And the short version, the Cliff Notes version of it, is it's it's basically this, this whataboutism, or this, it's this kind of the chickens have come home to roost narrative where he goes back and he recalls the, the Bill Clinton impeachment and kind of ties together Brett Kavanaugh's role in that and thing, things that re- Republicans who are currently in the fray over the Kavanaugh hearings said in relation to Clinton. And they say, well, you know, you guys are the ones, basically the case he's making is you guys are the ones who have set this precedent by, you know, making a big deal out of people's sexual picadillos. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. That's basically the argument. Now, I have a couple of problems with this comparison. One... <laughs> which seems to me to be fairly obvious, is that in the case of Bill Clinton, he actually did this stuff, right? Like, it wasn't even up for debate. Like, he actually did what he was accused of doing, and he did it while in the White House, and then lied about it to the public, and lied about it under oath. So, all of that doesn't even compare qualitatively to anything that Brett Kavanaugh is facing right now or has been accused of. So there's that aspect of it. But the other part that's particularly interesting to me is that you would think, you would think that if the case you're trying to make, 
is that Bill Clinton was in some way treated unfairly, then the correct response to that would be to establish the fair standard that Bill Clinton should have been treated under and then apply that going forward. So see, this is, this is the thing that the left never does. They, they point out what they hold to be injustices, but they don't then establish what justice is and then apply justice going forward. Instead, their idea of balancing the scales is to be unjust against the oppressor, right? So it's in the instance of, say, racial discrimination, going back to the Jim Crow days. It wasn't enough to create a society whereby we don't have discrimination against people racially. They had to flip the script. They had to create a scenario where, okay, now moving forward, we're going to discriminate against white people. We're going to discriminate against the majority because that's our idea. We're not actually interested in justice as such. We're interested in everybody having an equal turn under the the boot of the state, under the boot of the culture, right? Everybody gets to share in the suffering, and that's how we're going to, to make things, quote, equitable. That's their notion. And one of the ways, historically, culturally, that we've seen this expressed was in the O.J. Simpson verdict. You'll recall, if you're old enough, when the O.J. Simpson verdict came down, the, there was this racial divide in terms of how people reacted to it, and it was also a political divide in terms of how people reacted to it. And the, the basic argument, like to this day, you'll and especially nowadays, and it didn't take very long after the verdict came down, you'll get people to admit, yeah, O.J. Simpson did it, right? Like you'll get people to admit that, but then they'll go on to say, but it's a good thing that he got off because so many black men have been falsely accused in the past and so many white men have gotten away with murder, gotten away with rape, gotten away with this, that, or the other thing. That by letting O.J. get off, by having the verdict go down the way it did, it was a form of, quote, justice, unquote, for all those injustices that have occurred in the past. And this, too, demonstrates this this perverted, and it is perverted, notion of justice. That in order to set the scales right, you don't, uh, you don't, actually find a balance in the force you don't actually establish a standard of justice and then apply it moving forward what you do is you flip the script you you exchange who's going to be on the rack who's going to be on the cross who's going to be under the boot of the state and and pursue frankly vengeance well i maybe i took this article as confirmation bias of sorts but i read it as we have used the political system and our political beliefs to justify what we do to people. And so because we've established that president, now this is going to happen to Brett Kavanaugh. And I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about the Bill Clinton thing, but it's, it was just more, Hey, we've got this president. So if it happens to you, like you're kind of a victim of your own demise. Yeah. I, there are there are circumstances, there are cases, and they were brought up by some of our callers in terms of changing the Senate rules, changing the way that confirmation hearings uh, proceed, changing the way the Senate functions, that I think are better fits to, to make that point in terms of don't go around changing things or setting precedents yeah. that you don't want to live under in the future. Yeah, the uh, pretext is the Senate rule change. Right. And and so the the point that I'm trying to get after this hour is that 
there there is there's justice as you and I see it. There's justice as it actually objectively exists. And then there's this perversion of justice that the left is pursuing. And understanding that is the key to understanding what they're doing with Brett Kavanaugh. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. be said regarding the Brett Kavanaugh situation and I do want to wrap here wrap up here on the topic at the top of the hour uh, but then I want to move forward because there are other things going on in the world there is other news to cover and uh, we'll certainly have the opportunity guaranteed to circle background as the week goes on and talk more Brett Kavanaugh tomorrow evening nine o'clock we're gonna have Jeff Johnson Republican candidate for governor on the phone with us to talk about his campaign and uh, to tell us what's at stake in this election in Minnesota moving forward, what the Democrats have in store for us if they hold on to the governor's mansion and the alternative vision that Jeff Johnson has for us. So tune into that tomorrow night, 9 to 11 weeknights, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in that iHeartRadio app. Our channel will pop up for you. Contribute to the show this evening, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So the, the two news items that are relevant to what's going to take place later on this week in involving the Kavanaugh situation. An outside lawyer will question President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, and the woman accusing him of sexual assault at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing this week, Republican U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham said on Tuesday. This is from Reuters. Graham, a committee member, told reporters that outside counsel would ask questions for the panel's Republicans but gave no other details. And uh, other sources have revealed that this is going to be a female lawyer. And so obviously, in part, what they're looking for here is the the optics of it being a woman doing the one who's doing the questioning as opposed to one of the male uh, Senate Judiciary Committee members. The other headline that I found encouraging is Mitch McConnell says we're going to be moving forward this is also from Reuters he says I'm confident we're going to win confident that he'll be confirmed that being Brett Kavanaugh in the very near future I believe he will be confirmed yes McConnell also said the Senate has hired a woman lawyer to do the questioning of Kavanaugh and his accuser for Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee during Thursday's hearing all the Republicans on the panel are male and so there you go now as kind of a final word on all this at least for today uh, I turn to the incomparable Matt Walsh, who writes over at the Daily Wire. His headline is The Party of Evil. Now, one might think that hyperbolic. I might think that hyperbolic if I hadn't used the exact same terminology myself on a regular basis. And I don't think this is hyperbole. I don't think this is exaggeration. That We are dealing with a party of evil at this point. And Matt Walsh has a particular thesis as to why and the depths of that evil. He writes, Democrats have long since hit the bottom of the barrel in their attempts to smear Brett Kavanaugh. Now they've busted through the bottom and are furiously digging into the dirt. Last night, they presented the latest Kavanaugh scandal, his yearbook, 
Apparently, Kavanaugh wrote something rude in his 12th grade yearbook. This is supposed to have some sort of significance, though nobody can quite explain why. Meanwhile, Christine Ford is raising new concerns about the hearing that has already been pushed back and adjusted multiple times to accommodate her every women desire. It's becoming increasingly likely that no hearing will ever take place or was ever going to take place. This has all been a cynical delay tactic by Democrats. Besides, they've declared that they believe both of Kavanaugh's accusers. So what's the point of a hearing if Kavanaugh has already been convicted as a sex predator? Michael Avenatti says that Kavanaugh was the ringleader of a roving band of gang rapists, and he can prove it. Well, he was going to prove it, but now he might not, as was pointed out to us by Brad. But again, why prove it? All Democrats have to do is make the accusation. Evidence, witnesses, corroboration, these are irrelevant details. They certainly are irrelevant to the far-left mobs who are accosting Republican politicians and chasing them out of restaurants. That, of course, being a reference to uh, what happened to Senator Ted Cruz. we got another story on that later on here in the stack. Democrats have given up the pretense of honesty or discernment. They have plunged headfirst into outright nihilism. And why? Why are the Democrats disgracing themselves with such reckless abandon? Well, it's no coincidence that Supreme Court nominations became this sort of feeding frenzy after Roe v. Wade. This is about many things, but it is mostly about protecting their right to kill babies. Whatever Brett Kavanaugh did or didn't do in high school or college, the real crime he committed, the only crime Democrats care about, is his failure to bow before the blood-soaked altar of the abortion industry. It's important to keep this in mind as we watch the spectacle. Democrats are primarily upset that Kavanaugh might help prevent the continued systemic slaughter of children. If Kavanaugh was in favor of killing babies, they wouldn't care if he was an admitted serial rapist. If Kavanaugh had the right view on abortion, he could have brutally raped a woman in a hotel room and left her bruised and bleeding, as Bill Clinton did. He could have driven off a bridge with a woman in the car and left her there to die a slow and agonizing death as Ted Kennedy did, he could be guilty of anything at all, and they would not only look the other way, but descend upon his accusers and destroy them. The Democratic Party is untethered from any traditional notions of morality or human decency. Its primary mission is to protect and preserve an industry that makes billions of dollars murdering millions of babies. That from Matt Walsh, writing over at the Daily Wire. And again, his headline is The Party of Evil, and he does not intend that as irony or hyperbole, or exaggeration. He means it. And, you know, what this does, again, to reiterate the point, one of the points that I was trying to make last hour, what this does is it puts it puts those of us who desperately want to be critical and skeptical and to, to foster a sense of competition towards liberty within the Republican Party, it puts us in the position of having to set all of that aside, in order to get in line, get in formation, in order to combat this evil, in order to combat the Democrats, because they've gotten to the point where to and and I understand like this this is what I find myself coming to under in the context of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I find myself coming around to the very logic that I rejected during the 2016 election between Trump and Clinton. Because what I was told during the election in 2016 was, yeah, Trump's got problems. Yeah, he's got issues. Yeah, we wish he wasn't the way that he is, and we wish that he had different positions. 
But look at Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is so horrible. And look at the Democrats. The Democrats are so terrible that you got to go with this guy because he's not them. It's the lesser of two evils argument. Now, I'm not a big fan of the lesser of two evils argument for the for the very good reason that if you subscribe to that and you allow that to become a rationale or a justification for supporting your side, quote unquote, no matter what they do, no matter what they become, then you've abandoned any leverage you have to make them better. If you're not willing to walk, you know, and this is a a negotiation tip that Donald Trump would offer you if he were coaching you on how to negotiate. You don't walk into a room and advertise the fact that you're not willing to walk away, right? Like if if you want to have any leverage in the negotiations, you have to be willing to stand to stand up, push your chair back, turn around and walk out of the room. And in order to do that, your vote has to be on the table. You have to be willing to say, look, I don't care how bad the other side is. I'm not going to vote for you unless you abide by what I set as the minimum standards required in order to earn my vote. But we're reaching a point, and I think perhaps we've crossed it right now, where we don't have that luxury because they have to be defeated. They have to be. They've become so detached from reality, so detached from due process, so detached from anything that even remotely resembles, not just like socially acceptable, culturally beneficial, but like morally tolerable behavior. They are morally intolerable. They cannot be tolerated. They cannot be excused. They cannot be accepted. They have to be destroyed politically. They have to be annihilated politically. They cannot be allowed to prevail in any way. That's the place we find ourselves in. And as a consequence of that, we have to, we're going to have to sacrifice that negotiation leverage that we otherwise would have to try to get Republicans to behave themselves. That's a horrible place to be in. And it's not just a horrible place for us to be in as Republicans. It's a horrible place for Democrats to be in. Because if you actually if you have if you actually subscribe to the idea, if you're one of these non leftist liberals, and they do exist, believe me, one of these non hardcore leftist liberals who is more of a classical liberal, more more of a uh, Jack Kennedy liberal, somebody who has you know has a broader view of the role and scope of government, but isn't a socialist doesn't believe in abolishing communism, doesn't believe in abolishing ICE and all this stuff. Like, if you're a sensible liberal, there's no place for you in the Democratic Party. And you also have no, you you don't have that leverage either on your side to try to advance them towards any sort of sensible position because they have abandoned, like, institutionally, they've abandoned the process through which such compromise takes place. It's a very dangerous place for us to be in terms of the integrity of our institutions. And I don't know what happens next. Yeah, I think that your point to say that we have to vote we're, we have to vote for Kavanaugh to and get him through to quash the methods, I think is very valid. Um, because, you know, I've I've taken the viewpoint, as you say, I wouldn't vote for Kavanaugh. I'm skeptical, at least skeptical of Kavanaugh because of his view on the Fourth Amendment. Right. But um, 
that does and that doesn't mean that the next candidate is going to be any better. They might be worse on right. a, just as bad on another issue that I wouldn't accept. Mm-hmm. So I think that the most important piece is to just you, we cannot let them validate these methods and right. it the the aftermath of even comparing Keith Ellison, it, you know, if Keith Ellison gets elected, if Brett Kavanaugh doesn't get confirmed, that will set a whole new playing field right. of what is acceptable in American politics. Right. Well, and and who wins? And who wins from that? I mean, and you're right to bring up Ellison. Ellison is another example. If Ellison is able to become the next attorney general in Minnesota, in spite of the allegation, the the actually credible allegations that have been leveled against him. And look, I'm not saying they happen. I'm not saying Karen Monahan is 100% correct and she's a saint and everything, every word spoken from her mouth is gospel. But what she has presented is unquestionably more substantial than what has been presented by anyone against Brett Kavanaugh. And so for him to in to get past the the Minnesota voter in spite of that, and even if you took the accusation away, even if there was no accusation against Keith Ellison, just him, like yeah, what he is and what he represents onto itself, the the notion that that could be elected as the attorney general of Minnesota, somebody who who is effectively lawless. I mean, what he advocates for is effectively lawlessness, and he's going to become the chief law enforcement officer of Minnesota. That's a turning point in this state as well. So the stakes are so high, and I know you know my friend. Uh, Jake Duesenberg, if he's listening all tonight, is really shaking his head and and uh, having having a hard time with this because every election cycle we're told this is the most important election in your lifetime, right? And it's it's usually hyperbole. It's usually an exaggeration. This time it ain't. Well, it's not because Democrat, as we've seen in the polls that have been released so far. Democrats are in the lead and have the advantage. And so I think that I brought this up with Doug Wardlow, too. I said I don't envision a scenario in which, say, for example, Doug Wardlow is attorney general and Tim Walls is governor. Mm-hmm. If turnout is good for Democrats, then Keith Ellison will inevitably win. Right. And so that that's why the stakes are high. Yeah. It, the whole election centers on not getting Keith Ellison into the attorney general's office. I can accept any other Democrat in any other position, but I cannot accept Keith Ellison as the Attorney General. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Do We now live in a state whereby you can't pay casual attention to the news. If you pay casual attention to the news, which I need to amend this, you should be able to pay casual attention to the news. It shouldn't be like this to where if you if you hear one headline and you don't check up on it every hour on the hour, you end up being misinformed. But that's the state of affairs. That's where we end up being. We already heard an example of it tonight when I was talking about the Michael Avenatti uh, allegation that Brett Kavanaugh supposedly was the ringleader of a gang rape organization in his college years. And, you know, because that's a headline that I saw somewhere along the lines in social media in the past couple of days, past 24 hours. And then Brad brings to my attention, no, no, that's already been disproven and 
shaken out. Well, on the when I saw the gang rape headline, I was just like, "That is so outlandish! Yeah. It cannot be true." That was that was the reaction of literally everybody, except the most extreme partisans on the left. Is that this this is laughable? This is absurd. How could someone run a gang rape organization in college and not? <sighs> Get caught for it under the before radar. This point under the radar, <laughs> and make it all this way with a sterling reputation, and then it comes out, you know, at the at not just at the eleventh hour, but at eleven fifty nine in the confirmation process of the Supreme Court. I mean, th- you thought PizzaGate was ridiculous. PizzaGate ain't got nothing on this, right? I mean, and if you have not heard of 4chan, then you are as innocent as a virgin. Well. I don't know if I'd say that about myself, but I have heard of 4chan. I just haven't made use of it or uh, familiar enough with it to to actually, you know, get cultural references to well, it. Inside. Yes, then you are as innocent as a virgin. All right, well, there you go. But yeah, I mean, the, the point that I'm trying to make here in a very long-winded fashion is that if you're not paying attention to what's going on from a minute-to-minute basis, then you end up misinformed. And one of the stories where that sort of played out was with this whole Rod Rosenstein situation. Now, if you're like me, and in between getting ready for the show, I try to pay as little attention to news as possible, you know, partially because I know I'm going to eventually have to to dig into it deeply, and also because I feel like I need to have some breaks just for my own mental well-being in my exposure to the news. I, I nonetheless caught these, you know, headlines of Rod Rosenstein was fired, Rod Rosenstein resigned, Rod Rosenstein is going to be impeached, and all this conflicting information. Well, at different points in the day, each of those things had an element of truth to them. From the New York Times, when Rod J. Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, headed to the White House on Monday morning, he was ready to resign and convinced, wrongly it turned out, that President Trump was about to fire him. Top Justice Department aides scrambled to draft a statement about who would succeed him. By the afternoon, Mr. Rosenstein was back at his Pennsylvania Avenue office seven blocks away, still employed as the second-in-command at the Justice Department and, for the time being at least, still in charge of the Russia investigation. What happened in between was a confusing drama in which buzzy news reports of Mr. Rosenstein's imminent departure set in motion a dash to the White House and offer to resign, Capitol Hill speculation about Mr. Rosenstein's successor, and finally, a reprieve from an out-of-town president. We'll be determining what's going on, Mr. Trump said Monday afternoon from New York, where he was meeting with foreign leaders at the United Nations General Assembly. Asked about Mr. Rosenstein, Mr. Trump said, we're going to have a meeting on Thursday when I get back. So, you know, depending upon which of these frames in the slideshow you caught on social media your perception of what was going on with rod rosenstein was different in any given moment it reminds me very much of the the immediate aftermath of the james comey firing because as that story was developing it was all over the place too like this you remember you had uh what was it sean spicer at the time which can we just can we just you know pour out a little bit of pour out a little bit of uh, r40 for sean spicer i mean that guy what a what a great cultural icon! Remember when he was hiding in the bush in the aftermath of James Comey being fired? Oh, what a what a hilarious scenario that was! But you know, another example of the the absurdity of the news cycle. House conservatives threaten Rosenstein impeachment vote. 
this from Politico. President Donald Trump's top allies in Congress say they'll force a vote on impeaching Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein if he refuses to testify this week about reports that he sought to secretly record the president after FBI Director James Comey's firing last year. I do not believe doing nothing is okay when the guy who runs DOJ makes comments about taping the commander-in-chief. Representative Mark Meadows, chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, said in an interview, no matter what the context, it requires further investigation. The Judiciary Committee has an obligation to investigate. Top's Trump, or Trump's top conservative allies are ratcheting up pressure on House leaders to force a hearing. They've been privately pressing Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlot to arrange a public session with Rosenstein as quickly as possible. Meadows and Representative Jeff uh, Jim Jordan have reached out to Goodlot repeatedly to attempt to schedule a hearing. So far, though, Goodlot has not scheduled a hearing, and Justice Department officials say they've received no invitations for Rosenstein to testify. Speaker Paul Ryan's office declined to comment on the prospect of Rosenstein testifying. So another drama taking place parallel to the Brett Kavanaugh situation, all kinds of goodies that could develop here by the end of the week, or it could end up being much ado about absolutely nothing. Thursday is going to be interesting. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, So I made the case earlier that, you know, we find ourselves at a point where we're forced to be partisan. We're forced to circle the wagons. We're forced to take formation in the fight against the left, in the fight against the Democrats, because they're presenting us with no choice. Their their as is being written by Rich Lowry over the New York Post. They're proving Trump voters right. The Kavanaugh assault is proving Trump voters right. And, And as a result, it's very much us or them. Now, the consequence of that, um, among the many consequences of that, is that those of us who actually care about principle, those of us who care about trying to whittle a Republican Party that actually stands for and pursues in a serious manner public policy consistent with certain values, are are going to lose the, you know, we already have. We've long ago lost our leverage. But we're truly... For a for a long period of time, going to lose our capacity, our leverage to push the party in the direction that we would like it to go because we have nowhere else to turn. Right. Like if once you've made the decision that you have to defeat the Democrats, that you have to defeat the left, well, then you got to vote for Republicans. Right. Like that's the only option left to you. And there are consequences to that. There are casualties of that decision. One such is brought to our attention over at Bloomberg. The White House is considering a draft executive order for President Donald Trump that would instruct federal antitrust and law enforcement agencies to open probes into the practices of Alphabet Inc.'s Google, Facebook Inc., and other social media companies. Bloomberg News obtained a draft of the order, which a White House official said was in its early stages and hasn't been run past other government agencies. Separately, Lindsey Walters, Deputy White House Press Secretary, said in an emailed statement that the document isn't the result of an official White House policy-making process. The document instructs U.S. antitrust authorities to thoroughly investigate whether any online platform has acted in violation of the antitrust laws, 
It instructs other government agencies to recommend within a month after it's signed actions that could potentially protect competition among online platforms and address online platform bias. The document doesn't name any companies. If signed, the order would represent a significant escalation in Trump's aversion to Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media companies whom he's publicly accused of silencing conservative voices and news sources online. That was quite the Friday news dump. That I saw that notification on my phone at about 11.45 p.m. on Friday night. And I was aghast. Like there, I, I specifically do keep my eye out for Friday news dumps because it is interesting to see what gets released on Fridays. And this is the most abhorrent one I have seen in a long time. Now... We have spent much time on this program, I think properly, bemoaning the fact that Facebook and Google and Twitter and and these different tech companies have indeed been employing a political bias in the operation of their companies, in the operation of their platforms. You know, we had that video that was broken by Breitbart that uh, was taped right after the 2016 presidential election, wherein the leaders of Google got together and wrung their hands and gnashed their teeth and ripped their robes over the fact that Trump had defeated Hillary Clinton and committed amongst themselves to using their corporate influence to try to change the political landscape, right? And we've bemoaned all of that because there are big problems with that. There are big problems with presenting yourself, putting yourself out in the market and presenting yourself as a platform, which is to say a venue in which people can come together and connect with one another and develop consensual relationships and exchange ideas in a marketplace. When you present that as your product, but in actuality, you're taking on the characteristics of a publisher, somebody who edits, somebody who censors, somebody who determines what shall be said, and what shall be given prominence over others and what types of relationships can't be engaged in on your platform, it creates a type of fraud. And that is problematic, but the appropriate response to that is market competition, not government action. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it, we, we know that these platforms have been bad and not good stewards of the public's faith. But that doesn't mean that the methods of Donald Trump and the government as a whole are going to make it better. People argue that, well, Donald Trump is taking on the deep state. No, this is the deep state. Allowing Donald Trump to investigate search engine outlets and social media platforms is about as deep state as it comes. Well, and then, you know, we get into the point that we made uh, last hour when we were talking about the Brett Kavanaugh situation and the the Harry Reid changing the Senate rules, and you get into this principle of the shoe being on the other foot. Like, can we have a little bit of foresight into what this sets up when Democrats regain control, which they inevitably will, like at some point. Maybe it'll be this year. Maybe it'll be 2020. Maybe it'll be 2024. Maybe it'll be 2032, right? Like, who knows when the Democrats will be in control again, but they will be at some point. And do you want to have, have the precedent set and the power established whereby they can reach out and take, and under the auspices of antitrust, start dictating to actors on the internet, to actors in tech, 
how they're going to conduct their business, on what terms, what kind of relationships they can enter into, how they can operate? I would hope that the answer is no. If you don't want government to have this kind of power, then that should be your position, irrespective of who is currently holding it. Because, you know, th- those hands change. And so this this is problematic. But again, what can we do? We're, we're powerless to affect any sort of argument against this in a context where, you know, look, if if the Democrats really wanted to win, if the Democrats really wanted to to compete in a meaningful and provocative way with Donald Trump and the Republicans, they would be coming out against this on free speech grounds. In undermining their own political utility in the process, how, how amazing would it be for, say, and I know this is laughable, Nancy Pelosi, right, or Chuck Schumer to come out and say, you know what? Facebook and Google and Twitter, the we have friends there. We, we have donors from these companies, people who have been supportive of us politically, and we appreciate their support. That said, the notion that we ought to we ought to have we ought to have the the power to control the speech of these or any other companies mo- moving forward is un-American. It's anti-First Amendment, and we oppose it on those grounds. And this is not something we would want to do to you. Now, I, I understand that's you can never imagine Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi taking that kind of principled moral position, but. If they did, it would certainly be much more provocative and much more interesting than the status quo, than the value proposition we see put before us today. Let's talk to Eric in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, bro. How you doing, man? Doing all right. I just, you know, um, I just think this guy, Trump, you know, I love him. You know, that's a lot of friends behind him, but I think he's just doing what they're doing. If if he's talking about what I think he's talking about, they're already doing it and has been doing it. So, yeah, you know. That's right. That's if true. If he's going to Google and doing this and telling them they can't, you know, he want to, um, um, you know, do this, what he's talking about, I mean, they're already doing it with the media. I yeah. mean, but, I mean, that's how, I, I, I'm, that's how I'm looking at it. I mean. I appreciate the thought, Eric. Yeah, and, you know, look, that that is an argument, right? And it's the same argument that Laura Ingram made when she called for intervention in these tech companies, when she called for their regulation. Her argument was essentially, listen, this is, like it or not, this is the state of affairs. This is where we're at. We're at a point where we've it's it's been long established that the state gets to do this. The state gets to intervene in private affairs. It gets to intervene under the auspices of public accommodation and the corporations being a public good that deserve to be regulated. So, you know, if that's the, instead of arguing against that, which is what I would prefer as a libertarian, instead of arguing against that, let's buy it. Let's, if you can't beat them, join them and let's use it to our advantage in order to turn the tables and put the screws to our political opposition. But the problem with that is that 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 is the exact same rationale that, as we talked about last hour, rationalizes or justifies the O.J. Simpson verdict. When you decide that it doesn't really matter whether or not justice is served in a particular case, 
What o- the only thing that matters is the equity of balancing the scales of suffering, you know, making your opponent suffer the way they made you suffer before. If that's when when that's the the matrix or the prism through which we're viewing things, the casualty is going to be justice itself. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. All right, a few quick hits to take us out of the show this evening. Here on Closing Argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, 651-989-5855 if you want to squeeze in a comment before the end of the show. From Politico, Democratic Representative Beto O'Rourke defended the right of Senator Ted Cruz, his opponent in the Texas Senate race, to eat in peace after protesters bragged about chasing the Republican out of a Washington restaurant Monday night. Not right that Senator Cruz and his wife Heidi were surrounded and forced to leave a restaurant last night because of protesters. The Cruz family should be treated with respect, the Texas congressman tweeted Tuesday morning. According to video posted online, protesters targeted Cruz and his wife for complaints about the confirmation process of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, who has been accused of sexual assault in high school and college. Protesters chanted, we believe survivors, and one called out, Beto is way hotter than you, dude. Wow. <laughs> really, really uh, elevating the debate over there. Cruz left the restaurant muttering, God bless you, to the protesters. So, uh, so a surprising bit of decency from Democrat Beto O'Rourke there. And welcome, right? Like, we need more of that. We need more of... now. Undoubtedly, he is paying a price for doing that. Like, you can't push back against the Antifa mentality and expect to go unchallenged and expect to to not be rebuked by your own side nowadays. Because you know, as has been as was mentioned by you know one, some one of my social media friends links to this and made some comment about it, and then one of his lefty friends in turn. You know, the question that was asked was, what What do you think of this, Democrats? Is this the world you want to live in? And the reply from the lefty was, yes, absolutely. I want to live in the world where people demand investigation of accusations of sexual assault and blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, again, they, they, have, they have decided, whether you want to believe or not that you're in a total war, they have decided that you are. That's the way it works. The, the aggressor always knows you're at war before you do, right? Like the the one who starts the war, the one who's committed to your destruction is always aware of the stakes of the conflict before you come around to realizing what the stakes of the conflict are. And the left has made it clear that they're for total war, therefore our complete annihilation politically, and in some cases physically, and all those who have taken that sort of action as well. And it, it, bears out in these physical confrontations, which, as we know, have been encouraged by the likes of Maxine Waters. They've been encouraged by the likes of Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Barack Obama, lest we forget, get out there and get in their face. You know, get in their face and yell at them and blah, 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 blah. They like This is approved tactics amongst the Democrats. Another quick hit news uh that is noteworthy. Bill Cosby handcuffed 
and immediately taken into custody Tuesday after a Montgomery County judge sentenced him to three to ten years in state prison for the sexual assault of Andrea Constand. This is from USA Today. It is time for justice, Mr. Cosby. This is all circled back to you. The time has come, Judge Stephen O'Neill told the convicted sex offender, denying his request for bail pending appeal and ordering him into immediate custody. He quoted from Constant's statement to the court in which she said Cosby took her beautiful young spirit and crushed it. After the sentencing, Cosby removed his jacket, tie, and watch before being taken away in handcuffs, an officer holding his arm. He did not respond to a reporter's request for comment. Now, as I read this and as I look at the photo of Bill Cosby being led away in handcuffs, this, hopefully, is the closest I will ever come to understanding what it must feel like to have a family member convicted and led away in cuffs and going to prison because I feel some semblance of the type of conflicting emotions that I imagine one feels when it's their father, their uncle, their cousin, their sibling, whatever being taken away and being punished because on the one hand, Obviously, he deserves this, right? Like, he actually deserves much worse than this. Three to ten years for what he's accused of doing, drugging and raping women. I mean, you know, when you, when you, when you think about your wife, your sister, you know, your daughter being the victim of what Bill Cosby did, the biblical prescription for justice in this case would be death. That's what the Bible called for. He's getting three to ten years. He's getting off easy. And so in that sense, there's that side of the emotional reaction of justice has been served. Praise God. But the flip side of it is this is a guy who, you know, if you're my age or older, you have good memories of, right? You have you have foundational, formational memories of this guy. He was he was a a figure that was representative of until these accusations came to bear goodness and decency and a, a he was a role model i mean the cosby show was a cultural icon that portrayed not just you know it got a lot of attention for being a black family on primetime television but beyond that it was a moral family it was it was a show about a family that cared about what was right and and had parents that were focused on raising their children and they were focused on being productive and it 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 was countercultural in the sense that it was it didn't make excuses it addressed racial issues but it didn't you it didn't leverage racial issues as an excuse to be anything less than productive and virtuous and that was the product of bill cosby that too came from bill cosby and so you have this total package that you have to take into consideration. We, we tend to think in very binary terms of classifying people as either good or evil. But the, the fact of the matter is we're capable of both. And so to see Bill Cosby led away in handcuffs, he absolutely 100% positively deserves it. But it's also a deeper tragedy given the fact that had he not done what he did, his influence could have been so much greater. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. 